On the last episode of The TV Room, we talked about the fundamental changes to our electoral process that Trump's election might engender. And by electoral process, we weren't talking about the electoral college system. We were talking about the procedure by which both parties nominate their candidates and the role that the media plays in the whole process. Although, with the way things are shaping up in the final vote counts, Maybe we should have an electoral college system discussion. Hillary's beating Trump by what? 2.9 million votes at this point? It was 2.7 million the last time I checked, and the number seems to keep going up. Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary by over 2%, but his victory in the electoral college vote wasn't even close. How can you explain that kind of discrepancy? We've always known that the Electoral College system is a little bit quirky. And we've had a very recent example where the winner of the Electoral College vote also lost the popular vote. That was the 2000 election, where it came down to one state, Florida, in which a margin of 500 votes separated the winner from the loser. It was the closest vote in American history. So close that they couldn't call Florida for weeks as they examined hanging chads and butterfly ballots. And ultimately, it had to go to the Supreme Court, which was also divided down the middle. In the end, by a vote of five to four, the Supreme Court halted any further recount, giving Florida to George W. Bush by 500 votes. And with Florida, Bush won the Electoral College system with 271 votes, just one vote over the bare minimum of 270 needed to win. He ended up beating Gore 271 to 266 while Gore actually beat Bush in the popular vote by half a percentage point. 
taking 48.4% of the total vote to Bush's 47.9%. All in all, Gore received 550,000 more votes than Bush did in the 2000 election. And Gore became the first person in over a century to win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College vote. In both cases by the narrowest of margins. But neither number was that close in 2016. Hillary's popular margin over Trump was substantial. In losing, Hillary got a higher margin of popular votes against her opponent than four presidents who actually won. And the Electoral College vote wasn't that close either. And I think we all know what that tells us about how our state-by-state winner-take-all system works and doesn't work. If you get 50.1% of the vote in Pennsylvania, you get all of Pennsylvania's delegates. And your opponent gets zero. And that's done on purpose. Sometimes that works in favor of the Democrats, sometimes in favor of the Republicans. But it always works in favor of the state. Because the candidates know that it's a winner-take-all situation, so winning that state becomes important. If you lose a state 51% to 49, and you still got 49% of the delegates, you'd be fine with that, because basically you'd split the delegates with the winner. But if you know that you could lose all the state's delegates, you're going to pay extra attention to that state and its constituents. The other issue is the way the Electoral College system delegates are apportioned. There are 538 delegates in all. Half of 538 is 269, hence the magic number of 270 delegates to ensure the election outright. Each state gets its number of delegates assigned based on its population at the last census. So, California, the state with the highest population in the Union at 38 million, has 55 delegates. Texas has the second highest population at 26 million. It gets 38 delegates. And so on, all the way down to the states with the smallest populations, which all get three delegates each, no matter how small the state's population actually is. Now, California's 55 delegates sounds like a lot. 55 out of 538. That's over 10% of the total delegates of the whole country right there. But California has 12% of the total population, which means California is shortchanged by about, what, 10 delegates, maybe 11? In a zero-sum game like the Electoral College, these little numbers add up. At the moment, seven states have the minimum three delegates. They're guaranteed to have at least three no matter what, and it's always been that way, no matter how small your state's population is. And the reason for that is that our electoral college system is a direct reflection of our congressional system. We have two senators from each state and 435 congressmen in total from across the country in the House of Representatives. The number of representatives from each state depends on that state's percentage of the total national population, with each state guaranteed at least one representative. So, 100 senators plus 435 representatives equals 535. Add in three for Washington, D.C., and you get 538, which is the total number of electors in the Electoral College system. Now, every state gets two senators, and that was so that the big states couldn't push around the little states so easily. And every state gets at least one congressman so that they'll be guaranteed to have representation in the House of Representatives. That seems reasonable. 
But when you take those two guaranteed senators and one guaranteed representative and turn them into three electoral college delegates, you create an electoral system that is not reflective of the number of voters in each state. In California, if you do the math and divide the total population of 38 million by its 55 electors, that comes out to one elector for every 690,000 people. Wyoming and Vermont, the least populous states, don't even have populations of 690,000. And yet, they have three electors each. There are seven states with three electors each, eight including Washington, D.C., all of which have a population of under a million. In total, these seven states, plus D.C., have a population of 5.8 million and a total of 24 electoral college votes. If you add in the state with the next lowest population, that's another one million people, plus another four electoral college votes. If you put together the total population of the nine smallest states, including Washington, D.C., it comes out to 6.93 million, with 28 electoral college votes between them, which equals just over half of California's 55 electoral votes. Yet their total population of 6.93 million is less than one-fifth of California's population. If you add in the next seven smallest states, you would reach a total of 57 delegates. In total, those 16 states have a population of only 18.2 million, which is less than half the population of California, but with more delegates than California has. So that's the quirkiness of the electoral college system for you. It's the same way we've been electing presidents since George Washington. Those founding fathers, as enlightened as many of them were, had no interest in the one-man-one-vote system of modern democracy, probably because they feared it would lead to someone like Trump getting elected, a populist who appealed to people's baser instincts and had little interest or experience in the roles played by the institutions of government. In those days, you generally had to be a white male property owner to vote, and you had to be at least 21 years old, which was like early middle age back then. And you didn't vote directly for the president. You voted for the delegates from your state, who then got together with the delegates from the other states and chose the president altogether. Like today, the delegates from each state reflected the size of that state's total population. Every state wanted to maximize its total population so that it would get more delegates, even though there was never an intention of letting everybody vote. The best illustration of this dichotomy is the three-fifths clause, which you probably learned about in history class. One of the things the Founding Fathers argued about was whether slaves should be counted in the census. It may seem a little counterintuitive, but the slaveholding states thought they should count, and the non-slave states thought they shouldn't. And that should give you a good idea of how they viewed democracy right there. The people who owned the slaves wanted them to be counted as people, or souls, in the parlance of the time. Of course, the slave states had no interest in giving slaves the actual vote. They just wanted their numbers to be counted for the Electoral College. As was usually the case, the Founding Fathers compromised. A slave would be counted as three-fifths of a person for Electoral College purposes. But not everybody who counted as a full person could vote either. Certainly not women. Voting was generally restricted to the proverbial head of household. 
A household in those days might consist of a wife, dependent children, assorted servants and workers, and possibly slaves. Basically, whoever lived on the property that you owned. Today, when you fill out a census or do your taxes, the questions are still framed the same way. Who is the head of household at this address? How many dependents are there? We do still think in terms of households, but the status of wives, children, and the help are much different. Voting is open to all citizens aged 18 or older, regardless of race or gender, as it is in all modern democracies. But of course, unlike other democracies, we still vote for our state's delegates to the electoral college system, not directly for the president. We do vote directly for our senators, but that's only been the case since 1913, when the 17th Amendment to the Constitution was enacted. Before that, senators were chosen by state legislatures, much like how our presidents are still chosen. These days, the Democratic and Republican national conventions are huge pep rallies for the party's nominee. Basically, they're orchestrated television events. But until the 1960s, the national conventions were the proverbial smoke-filled rooms where wheeling and dealing took place and backroom deals were made and the votes of electoral delegates could be bargained for. Today's conventions are scripted television events. The delegates are bound to vote for the candidate they were pledged to in their state's primary, so there can be no rude surprises. But as the attempted revolt on the first day of the Republican convention floor this year showed us, as well as the controversies surrounding the superdelegates for the Democratic National Convention, this antiquated method of choosing nominees is not entirely extinct yet. Technically, the U.S. is a constitutional republic, we still think of ourselves as a democracy. And when we vote for president, we feel as if it's a one-person, one-vote situation. And generally, the final result does correspond with what the majority of the people vote for. But not always. In Great Britain, we get a kick out of how the judges still wear those powder wigs from the King George era. It seems like a quaint nod to the nation's judicial traditions without having any mitigating effect on their modern legal process, of course. The Whigs are purely symbolic. Britain's legal system still fully conforms to first world 21st century standards, regardless of the powder wigs. We know that. And that's how you could think of the US and its electoral college system. We're a first-world democracy that just happens to have this quirky tradition that reflects our colonial past. But so far in the 21st century, two out of our five presidential elections have featured a winner who actually lost the popular vote. And if you live in Texas or California, the largest states in the Union, your vote is taken for granted. But if you live in one of the battleground Rust Belt states, your vote is coveted and you will be pandered to. Now, based on all that, it might sound like I'm opposed to the electoral college system and would rather replace it with something more modern and reflective of the times. But that's not necessarily the case. Actually, I think the electoral college system, along with the Senate, is what keeps our country whole, despite being so huge and diverse. This anachronistic, unwieldy system is probably what keeps the country from breaking up into smaller countries. What keeps these United States united? 
Because the smaller states, no matter how marginalized they feel by the larger states and the big cities, still get a very important say in who becomes president and what the nation's agenda will be. Our country. We like to call it the greatest nation the earth has ever known. We're famous for our patriotism, our nationalism, and our sense of pride. So you'd expect us to know quite a bit about the name of this country. But do we? Okay, first of all, what is the name of the country? And what does it mean? Well, you probably said the U.S. or the U.S.A. or the United States or the United States of America or just America. That's a lot of choices. Usually a country's name tells us something about the place right away. France is named after the Franks, the tribe who settled themselves in that region a thousand odd years ago. They speak French. Sweden is named after the Swedes. They speak Swedish, and so on. That's the idea of the nation state. At the root of a country's name is a tribe or a geographic feature or some kind of proper noun that is unique to the place. But what about our name? The United States. It's so generic sounding, like it was drawn up on paper instead of being organically manifested by the people for the people. But despite our country's generic sounding name, we do have a national designation, Americans. The thing is, America is the name of the entire so-called New World, that huge landmass between Europe and Asia that consists of two continents and dozens of countries besides our own. Nonetheless, we've appropriated the name Americans for ourselves. When you say America or Americans, people know exactly what you're talking about. When you say the 1900s were the American century, people know that you mean it was the USA century. Americans are totally accustomed to being the center of their own universe. We're the superpower. The world speaks our language. We've never been invaded or occupied by another country, except for that British house call in 1812. And most of us will never have a passport because we won't ever need one. But for virtually every other country on earth, none of these things are true. We can get through life just fine being totally oblivious to the rest of the world and how they perceive us. We don't give a second thought to the distinction between the terms America, American, USA, or United States. But others do pay attention. They point out that all the other North American and South American people are Americans too. Sometimes they even try to put us in our place by calling us USAnians. But it never works, mostly because we're oblivious to the whole thing. The term America was coined by a German mapmaker named Martin Waldseemuller who needed to come up with a name for this newfound land that was suddenly being included in European maps for the first time ever. So he made an executive decision on the fly to name it after a fellow mapmaker, an Italian merchant and explorer named Amerigo Vespucci, who may have been present on a couple of Spanish expeditions to South America, but was mostly known for the letters he wrote home about the experience, which were read by the German mapmaker. So, from the doff of the cap of one European cartographer named Martin Waldseemuller, who probably never even saw the ocean, to another named Amerigo Vespucci, who had tagged along on a couple of expeditions and written it up for the folks back home, the name America derives, and from that name derives a nationality. 
We've also taken the initials of that country's full name and turned that into a national identity as well. USA is not even a true acronym like MASH or UNESCO. It's just three initials. But when Steve Miller sings Living in the USA, it conjures up an image, even if he is being sarcastic. When the Beach Boys sing Surf in USA, it conjures up an image. And of course, when people at sporting events or political rallies chant USA, USA, that conjures up some strong imagery as well. We even use the term the red, white, and blue as another name for the United States. So we've adapted. We've come up with ways to add color to the otherwise generic sounding United States. A name that is basically as bureaucratically derived as the United Nations or the United Federation of Planets. But generic as it may be, there is information contained in that name. At the root of it all, it's a collection of states that call themselves United. Before they were states, they were colonies, British colonies, that decided to rebel and declare their independence. It was a risky venture, and everybody knew the consequences if they lost. In order to fend off the British, these 13 colonies had to fight as one. As Ben Franklin remarked to John Hancock and friends at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, gentlemen, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. But afterwards, these independent states, as they had become, didn't want to just hand their hard-earned sovereignty back over to some new king. They were familiar with the cautionary message of Animal Farm. So when the delegates to the Constitutional Convention got together to draw up the game plan, they drafted the manual for what they hoped would be a more perfect union, with a president elected to fix terms instead of a king, and a bicameral legislature which is to say a Congress with two bodies, the Senate and the House of Representatives, to make sure that the states kept plenty of power in relation to the president, and that the smaller states wouldn't be so easily pushed around by the bigger states. That's why every state has two senators, no matter how big or small, and why the Senate holds more power than the House of Representatives, which is based on a state's relative population. And about that word state, Americans are notoriously clueless about geography, but most of us feel pretty confident that we at least know what a state is, and can probably name a bunch of them. The root of the word state comes from the German Stadt, S-T-A-D-T, which means city. So how did the German word for a city become our word for a state? Well, surely it harkens back to the time not too long ago when the map was covered with city-states rather than nations. Venice was a powerful city-state, Florence was a powerful city-state. Ancient Rome started out as a city-state. Athens and Sparta were city-states. But by Shakespeare's time, they were using terms like the state of Denmark to mean the country of Denmark. City-states had become nation-states. And even today, outside of the American context, a state still means a country in most cases, something independent that mints its own currency and controls its own borders. And that must have been what the word state meant to the Founding Fathers when they came up with the name United States. Something more along the lines of the United Nations. At that time, and for a while afterwards, it was common to refer to these United States instead of the United States, or to say the United States are instead of the United States is. The individual states themselves were still thought of as the solid facts on the ground the established entities in which generations had lived and fought for. 
While the so-called United States was something more abstract and aspirational, kind of like the European Union or the United Nations are today. You can kind of make the argument that what the UN and EU aspire to is a utopian future where the borders of states no longer matter because they all belong to a larger, more perfect union of which they are all equal members. In other words, they're trying to achieve precisely what has already been accomplished in these United States. About those states, when you look at the original 13 colonies, they are the tiniest states in the union, land-wise. When you start heading west across the Appalachians, the states start getting a little bigger. And when you go further west across the Mississippi, the states are on a whole other scale of big. They're massive and they're rectangular, as if the state was just an abstraction drawn up on paper. And that's because by then, one civil war later, we were the United States instead of these United States. And states were thought of as parcels of land inside the country rather than the quasi-independent nation-states of colonial times. Okay, well, that was a little bit of a tangent, but it needed to be said because we are in a time now, after the 2016 elections, in which Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by a significant margin in the popular vote, but still lost decisively in the Electoral College. And some people have been wondering aloud if it's a good idea to stick with this antiquated convention from the 1700s when we're now in the 2000s. Well, we've already offered up some opinions on that. For better or worse, this union of states has held together for over 220 years. What was it that Ben Franklin said to John Hancock? My, what big handwriting you have? No, the other thing. If the states don't hang together when times are tough, they will surely hang separately when times are tough. Part of becoming a more perfect union is not letting perfect be the enemy of good. The electoral college system may not be perfect, but if it helps, you can think of it as affirmative action for small states. Maybe you could even say that the electoral college system is an example of our diversity being our strength. Well, we did it. We spoke for half an hour about the electoral college system. Hopefully you found it as fascinating as I did. Next time on the TV Room, we're going to talk about whether the election of 2016 spells the end of the television age, or a strange new beginning. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. That's S as in sponge cake, O-R-E, F as in freedom fries. TV. See you next time.